climb mountains If the mountains were where you hide Oh, how far I'd scale the valleys If you grace the other side Oh, how long have I chased rivers From lowly seas to where they ride Against the rush of grace descending From the source of its supply It's in the highlands and the heartache Neither more nor less inclined I would search and stop at nothing You're just not that hard to find So I will praise you on the mountain I will praise you when the mountain's in my way you're the summit where my feet are I will praise you in the valleys of the same No less God within the shadow No less faithful when the night leads me astray You're the heaven where my heart And the heartache all the same Oh, how far beneath your glory Does your kindness extend the path From where your feet rest on the sunrise where you sweep the sinners past Oh, how fast would you come running If just a shadow me through the night and Trace my steps through all my failures And walk me out the other side Who could dare say Mountain, valley, hill called Calvary. But for the one I call Good Shepherd, who like a lamb was slain for me. So I will praise you on the mountain. I will praise you when the mountains in my way You're the summit where my feet are I will praise you in the valleys of the same No less God within the shadows No less faithful when the night leads me astray You're the heaven where my heart is All the same. Whatever I walk through, wherever I 
I am Your name can move the mountains Wherever I stand Whenever I walk through The valley of death I sing through the shadows My song of ascent Whenever I walk through Whenever I am Your name can move the mountains Wherever I stand Whenever I walk through the valley of death, I sing through the shadows my song of ascent, my song of ascent. My song of ascent. From the gravest of all valleys Come the pastures that we call grace A mighty river flowing upwards From a deep but empty grave So I will praise you on the mountain I will praise you in the mountains in my way You're the summit where my feet are I will praise you in the valleys all the same No less God within the shadows No less faithful when the night leads me astray You're the heaven where my heart is Highlands and the heartache all the same. The season of Lent is now behind us. That 40 days where we were focused on introspection, a time of repentance, humility, fasting, a time where we had this opportunity to slow down a little bit, to move at God's speed as we worked our way through the Backyard Pilgrim. Pondered those questions. Who is God? Who are we? Where is God? Where are we as we walk through this pilgrimage in our lives? Especially as we focus on our everyday ordinary lives in God's extraordinary creation. And so now that that season is behind us, it's a day to turn our eyes to that cross up there. It's a solemn day in the church. It's a day to grieve. It's a day to mourn all that our sins cost our Lord and Savior on that cross. And so it's only appropriate that we approach this with a heavy heart. And we also ask that as we depart today, we do so in silence making our way out of the church quietly to our vehicles. So to begin this service tonight, I ask you to just join me in this corporate prayer of confession, Psalm 51, that you see on the screen behind me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Amen. Against every expectation and completely counter to the ways of the proud and mighty of this world, the almighty, infinite God of all creation became flesh and made his dwelling among us. From beginning to end, Jesus' life and ministry was one of humility. He made his grand entrance to earth as a helpless baby to a poor, young, unmarried couple on an ordinary night in an itty-bitty, ordinary town. He was laid in a feeding trough in a dirty, smelling, dwelling, dwelling place for animals. Only the local shepherds came to worship him, being tipped off to his arrival by a host of heavenly angels. He and his parents didn't even get to go home after he was born, but rather they fled to Egypt to hide from the maniacal Herod for two years. When they were finally able to return to Nazareth, he grew up, likely learning the humble trade of carpentry from his earthly father, but spending what time he could in the temple because he knew even from a young age that he was here to do one thing, to be about his heavenly father's business. All throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was prayerful, deliberate, and unhurried. He fully relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, using God's word as his only effective weapon against the temptations of this world, against Satan, and when he was confronted by those who would seek to bend his will to serve their own agendas and expectations. There were certainly occasions when Jesus could have used his power to dazzle or destroy. Scripture says he could have called on legions of angels at any moment, but he never did. He laid that kind of power aside when he was here on earth. He never forced himself on anyone. He never coerced faith or repentance. He simply presented truth and then a choice because that's what godly love does. His ministry was one of teaching, interacting, touching, serving, loving in word and deed. He was powerfully and compellingly meek and humble. At the last supper with one disciple who was soon to betray him, 
the rest jockeying for position, all who would desert him, he lavished love on them and washed their feet. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They begin to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. When Jesus instituted the sacrament of communion, he had in mind that cross up there because the cross is where his body was going to be broken and where his blood was going to be shed. And it was necessary for his blood to be shed in order to atone for our sins because as the writer of Hebrews tells us, there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And under the new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. Before he went to that cross to shed his blood for you and me, he had a meal with his disciples, instituting communion between God and his people for all time. The Apostle Paul encourages us to examine ourselves before we receive communion. So since we've already corporately and publicly professed our faith in, in Christ, but also confessed our sins before him. I invite everyone to just take a few moments in the quiet of your hearts to confess your sin again, to recommit yourself in humble obedience to his service, because this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, our sin is ever before us, reminding us of our need for a savior. You are our God and we are your people. And so you sent your son to die on the cross, establishing this new covenant that we now live under. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only and our souls shall be healed. Amen. On the night of his betrayal, our Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, 
we proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord Jesus until he comes again. For communion this evening, we're going to invite you all to come forward. I'll release you from the center aisle. Please come forward to the center aisle, receive the communion elements, and then return back to your pews on the outside aisles. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. 
after they shared the Passover meal and made their way to the garden, Jesus poured out his heart in prayer to the Father, wrestling with what obedience would cost him. But ultimately, he laid down his will that his Father's might be done. Later that same night, betrayed by one of the twelve, Jesus demonstrated the extraordinary beauty and power of quiet strength. Even though soldiers were aggressively bearing down on him, weapons in hand. When Peter drew his sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus compassionately healed him and let the authorities lead him off to an unfair trial. before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraigned him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. 
and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. We cannot gloss over the fact that ever since that fateful day in Eden, fallen men and women like you and me have been bending the truth or outright lying for self-preservation or to advance our own agendas. Did you notice how the chief priests and crowds said that Jesus refused to allow them to pay tribute to Caesar? Not only did he never do that, Jesus actually encouraged people to render unto Caesar what was Caesar's and to render unto God what is God's. Jesus never sought to stir up the crowds. He simply spoke truth. But that truth agitated and threatened those who didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to have their idols exposed. And not only that, they didn't want to lose their power and control over the people. They were the ones who got stirred up, working to discredit Jesus at every turn. If you pay close attention to the narrative, you'll also notice that Jesus didn't stay completely silent, but he never defended himself. He didn't resist or argue with those who accused and railed against him that day. Far from misleading the nation, Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law and prophets of Israel. All the fullness of God was wrapped up in him. He indeed was Christ the King. But his kingdom was nothing like the kingdoms of this world. He didn't come to lead a revolt or to overthrow Rome. He came for our spiritual deliverance and salvation. He was the very essence of love and truth, offering to us the gift of eternal life. But human nature has not changed much. When we are confronted with truth that threatens our own agendas and our man-made kingdoms, we often respond with fear and angry aggression, vehemently twisting the words and intentions of the ones we believe threaten us. That's precisely what the chief priests and the scribes were doing here. I don't think we can begin to comprehend the indignity and the shame that Jesus endured that day, mocked, ridiculed, stripped naked, flogged, spit upon, struck in the face, crowned with thorns. Yet he didn't resist. Not once did he fight back or defend himself. He didn't argue his innocence or demand his rights. Again, he's the great I am. He could have leveled them with a word. 
his cosmic power and profound strength were demonstrated in immeasurable humility, meekness, and gentleness as he submitted to the will of the Father. Perfect obedience, uncompromising truth, selfless love for the sake of those who would condemn him. Come behold the wondrous mystery He the perfect Son of Man In His living, in His suffering Never trace nor stain of sin See the true Then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Just a few days earlier, this same crowd was joyfully welcoming Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! But now, crucify! 
crucify him. The Jewish leaders were determined. The facts didn't matter. They wanted Jesus executed. Even though crucifixion was a punishment that the Jews found to be abhorrent because of its utter inhumanity, their own Torah affirmed anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And that's the message they wanted to ring out loud and clear that far from being the Messiah or the King of the Jews, Jesus was cursed by God. They wanted Jesus gone and their power and control intact. And they wanted to send a clear and unmistakable warning to anyone else who would be so brazen as to threaten their authority or buck the status quo. And their voices prevailed. Have you ever wondered where you would have been in the crowd that day? What you would have been feeling? What would you have been shouting? It is so easy for us to look down our noses with arrogant contempt at those fickle Israelites. Didn't they love Jesus? Why on earth would they want an insurrectionist and a murderer released and Jesus crucified? What was wrong with them? What cowards. And I'm afraid of what I would have done that day. I don't know what I would have been yelling. Fear is powerful. And the world uses that power to get what it wants. To bully and oppress to manipulate and control. And that day, the powers that be wanted Jesus dead. And all the while, Jesus, the same Jesus who stormed or stilled the stormy seas and who touched and healed lepers, the same one who commanded blind eyes to see and dead man to get up and live again, he calmly and resolutely stood there, humbly, a whole different power at work in and through his quiet strength, his willing obedience, power fueled by love for his father and for those he came to save. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, 
Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? We don't know a whole lot about Simon. He may have lived in Jerusalem, but more than likely he was just one of the thousands of pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem that year to celebrate the Passover. We may not know much about him, but I think we can be pretty sure he didn't wake up that morning thinking it would be just great if he could help some prisoner carry his own cross to his execution. The text says the soldiers seized Simon. Once again, violent power to abuse and force compliance. So vastly opposed to the gentle power and the gracious love of Jesus that allows us to choose what we will believe and what we'll do. By this time, the terrible flogging the severe blood loss, the physical trauma. Jesus' body was breaking down. He was virtually unrecognizable. The soldiers could see that he may not even make it to Golgotha. And so they used their power to strong arm Simon into helping, whether he wanted to or not. Again, can you even imagine what must have been going on in Simon's heart and mind? The horror at seeing this man so beaten, bruised, and bloodied, and the fear and the uncertainty of it all. No doubt he heard the soldiers jeering and mocking and the others in the crowd doing the same thing along with ones who were mourning and lamenting, a cacophony vibrating with emotion. And then, the one whose cross he's carrying speaks. But he doesn't hurl angry or hateful words. He once again just speaks truth. And they're words of sadness and of warning, of heartache, really, for the people who are doing this to him, rather than for himself. I wonder which power arrested and impacted Simon more. The external and coercive power of the authorities or the internal and gentle power of love that he no doubt saw in Jesus' eyes and heard in his words. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. 
and the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. To the bitter end, those whose hearts were hardened did everything they could to mock, scorn, and humiliate Jesus, to flaunt what they believed was their power over him. And while they did, Jesus prayed for them. He prayed that his Father would forgive their blind ignorance and cruelty. What mercy. What incredible love. There was certainly a lot going on that day, but ultimately it was a battle between two powers. David talked about those two powers this past Sunday. The power of sin and evil. Power that is fueled by fear and control, aimed to destroy. Power that is external and coercive. It undermines freedom and it manipulates responses and outcomes. Versus the power of the love of God in Christ. Power that is fueled by humility, by serving, by quiet strength, aimed at building up powerful, lavish love that gives us a choice. We can choose to respond to the gentle power of God's love and grace in Christ with anger, arrogance, resistance, and pride like the chief priests and the soldiers. Or we can choose to respond to the power of his love by humbly and gratefully receiving that which he died to give us. Mercy, forgiveness, and hope. Everlasting life. Ultimately, we are the two criminals. We either shake our fists at God demanding that he give us what we want, angry and disgusted by him even, 
that we're getting precisely what our sins deserve. Or we can recognize our complete and utter hopelessness apart from his mercy. When the latter is true of us, his love shatters our hard, rebellious hearts to pieces. And we humble ourselves before him, hating, confessing, and repenting of our sin, calling on his mercy and his grace to save us. But we absolutely know we deserve nothing but punishment and death. darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said father into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Sinners blind. 
Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. 